Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Here's your host, John Murphy. Hello there, and welcome to the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff Podcast. I'm your host, John Murphy, the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills, here to talk about Bills and beer. That's what we do. We are brought to you by Sullivan's uh, Brewery in Kilkenny, Ireland, the producers of fine beer, Sullivan's Irish Red Ale, Maltine's Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. We're here to talk about the Bills and NFL football after week one and get you set up for week two this year. The Bills came up with a 10-point win over the uh, New York Jets on Sunday at home, a game that, let's face it, it really was not as close as it looked, right? It really wasn't. The Bills dominated almost right from the start and went on to win. They were 2-1 to one in, ter- in, in terms of uh, produced yards, the yards produced for the game, total net yards. Uh, more than 2-1 to one in terms of uh, time of possession. All of those uh, things you look at when you start to see who won the game and how they won it. The Bills did everything they had to. They did not play a perfect game. There's no question about that. But they came out on top one to nothing with an important win over their division rival. A couple of things about the game. Well, let me tell you about the podcast first on today's podcast. We're going to talk about the Bills game, talk about the NFL in general with James Lofton, one of my all-time favorite Buffalo Bills, a pro football Hall of Famer. He was here for the game. He called the game on CBS TV on Sunday. James Lofton has some reflections on how the Bills played, how they looked, and some thoughts about uh, pro football in the COVID era. Also, we're going to get into a little bit with him about his home base, Southern California and California in general. Some amazing uh, disasters going on out there with the wildfires. We'll talk with James Lofton about that. Tim Herzog is going to join us in our beer segment today. Tim Herzog is the man behind Flying Bison Brewing Company. He's the CEO, the founder, and the man who started it all. Many consider him to be the uh, seminal figure in uh, establishing craft brewing here in Buffalo and Western New York. We'll talk with Tim Herzog about some of that during our podcast today. Beer and Bills. That's what we're going to talk about. Beer and football. Let's start with the Bills. 10-point win against the New York Jets on Sunday. Nobody in the crowd. A very surreal sense. I got the sense, and we were we were there, and I got the sense from our broadcast booth that um, it was just different. Everything was different, including, uh, especially for me at the start of the game, when you normally notice the crowd and notice what people are dressed in and how they're acting and how they react. Nobody there. It was really kind of sad, to be honest with you, to, to see it. Um, and there was also this. There was, um, you know artificial noise that wasn't really right wasn't quite right so the noise never really matched up what was going on on the field interestingly enough the players generated their own own noise on the sidelines on the bench players clapping cheering you could hear it i'm sure you could hear it if you were listening to our broadcast so that was interesting um the bills played well there's no question about that josh allen got a 300 yard game important to some people not really important to me but there it is 300 yards in a winning cause for the bills um, two things that stood out from that game that I think bode well for the rest of the season for the Buffalo Bills. Number one, the versatility they exploited on offense. They had so many, I bet they had eight, maybe ten different offensive formations in the game. I mean, they had two back sets. They had both Zach Moss and um, and uh, Devin Singletary operating in the backfield on either side of Josh Allen. They had one back sets. They had double tight end sets. They had four receivers, which we never saw last year. Uh, just outstanding. And they, they did it effortlessly. Got those groups in uh, without much trouble um, in the first game without a preseason. That was important to do, and I think they have to be happy about that. I really was impressed by that. The versatility of the offense, the uh, way they showed so many different looks and so many different formations to the New York Jets, I thought that was critical. Number two, defense. 
the defensive front, the front four, Trent Murphy, Ed Oliver, uh, and Quentin Jefferson started Sunday, and, and uh, Jerry Hughes. And right immediately, almost the second series, another front four. It was A and B, the second front four, with, uh, with Daryl Johnson and Harrison Phillips and Mario Addison and uh, Justin Zimmer just off the practice squad. And they rotated through them through on a regular basis with the ones. That was pretty impressive. And they did that. Obviously, you want to have fresh bodies up front, but they just have different skill sets. I think that really bodes well for the rest of the season. Injuries, yes, the linebacker injuries are troubling. We'll see how that plays out in the weeks ahead. In all, a good start for the Bills. They are 1-0 to start this season. A couple of other observations about uh, the game. Um, let me start with this. The uh, the uh, social justice uh, platform for the Buffalo Bills and the rest of the NFL. Much was made going into week one last week about what are teams going to say? How are they going to handle the anthem? Uh, will they join hands together? What will they do? Uh, the Bills and the Jets elected to stay up in the locker room during the playing of the anthem, which is fine. Then there's nobody second-guessing who's kneeling, who's standing, who's got a, a fist raise. You know, if they have a, a thought about the anthem and its propriety before a game, they kept it private, where really it probably should be. Number two, uh, the Bills, I think, have made tangible, practical efforts to uh, set up a social justice forum here in Western New York. Um, they've done three, they did three things last week. They set up a, a partnership with the City of Buffalo Schools to provide uh, tablets for school students, for elementary school students in Western New York. That's one, that's big. That's a financial commitment on their part. Two, they pledged to help with voter registration to get more people to the polls, get out to vote. Uh, regardless of what party you are uh, affiliated with, you want people voting. You want people engaged in their democracy, right? And that's what the bills have pledged to do. And three, the players have said that they will help encourage the uh, participation in the 2020 census. And the participation has been lagging uh, for sure in recent weeks. So uh, tangible efforts, not just symbolism. Symbolism's fine. Symbolism is good uh, from time to time. But the bills players, I think to their credit, have a tangible uh, thing that they're looking to do to put together to make a difference in their community. I'm going to credit Lorenzo Alexander, now a former Buffalo Bill. He's the one who started it all a couple of years ago when there was so much furor about uh, Colin Kaepernick kneeling and what's going on with players. Lorenzo Alexander kind of instructed his teammates to do something about it, and that's what they're doing, tangible efforts to get something done in the community, and I salute them for that. Number two, and this is more of a widespread um, observation I make and something that occurred to me last week. So there were no fans in the stadium at, at Buffalo, and only uh, two places had fans in the stands this past Sunday in the NFL. You know, for decades, there's been talk that the NFL is really a, a studio sport, that the crowd was just an addition to what really goes on on the field, where the game is played and where most of the action is centered. We are, we may be, I'm not sure about this, but we may be moving towards uh, a real establishment of the NFL as a studio sport, a television sport, where the crowd is really secondary. Um, no crowd there Sunday. They were missed. The noise, the excitement, the colors, all of it was missed. But the game went on. The game counts. The game was played. I think in the future, the NFL may start to explore more of a studio sport type uh, atmosphere. For instance, what sense does it make to build a multi-billion dollar stadium using taxpayer money in many cases, for a football team. Maybe you can get by with a smaller stadium, just like the Chargers played in that tiny little bandbox in Los Angeles the last few years. Uh, I'm just saying, as you look to the future and the future of football in Buffalo, maybe you don't need a 60, 70,000 seat stadium filled with people every week. Will there be less money to be made? Sure, but you make that up elsewhere with uh, suites 
and you increase ticket prices. It can be done. And the, the main source of revenue in the NFL is TV. I think you can get by without 70,000 seat stadiums. And I'm wondering if the end, by the end of this year, the NFL will start to look at that as perhaps the wave of the future, right? Maybe, maybe not. All right, so we're set up now to talk about the NFL, about the Bills, and about beer. It is the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. I'm John Murphy. We're going to get started with James Lofton now. Happy to have James Lofton on with us, Pro Football Hall of Fame wide receiver. He spent 17 years in the NFL, four of them with the Buffalo Bills. He was the analyst on the CBS broadcast of the Bills-Jets last Sunday. Back home in Southern California, and James, I'm sure... Your travel schedule has really been affected by COVID, huh? Yeah, the, the travel is obviously different. You are in the airport, supposed to be six feet away. Everyone has on a mask. Um, so it's, there's this isolation, even though there are a lot of people around. And it's, uh, it, it's very interesting. And once we get to the city that we're going to broadcast the game in, we actually have to be there at least 48 hours before the game so that we can get tested on site. Mm. And we have to pass that test in order to be able to get into the stadium. And then there are more checks. Once you get to the stadium where you go through temperature checks and you go through all the questions about if you've been around people, if you have any symptoms. And so, yeah, there's a lot to it now. James, how do you think the atmosphere at Bill Stadium was different uh, on the broadcast, especially because of COVID and the fact that there were no fans there? Um, obviously, it, it's different. We had a murmur that went over the air, but was not heard in the stadium. So the players didn't hear, but the, the murmurous crowd noise, uh, a little bit of excitement when there's a good play for the home team. So that's part of the broadcast, but not part of the in-stadium experience. Um, I heard one distinct comment on what it felt like, and that was from Bill Belichick, obviously. And there was a big lead into the question about how he felt this and that. And he said, practice. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it does have an element of practice to it, but it also has the finality of being very meaningful in the standings. How about your preparation for games, James? You don't have really in-person production meetings now. What did that do to the prep for the games? Anybody who is, I have this uh, child who's in school knows that now it's over Zoom. We meet with the players and the coaches over Zoom. We even meet with our own individual staffs over Zoom. And very rarely are we together uh, physically other than on game day. And you go to the booth and there's plexiglass in between the booths and six feet distance away. So a lot of those things that uh, the CDC is urging people to implement, we go probably the extra yard doing stuff. One more question, James, and this deals kind of a a big picture look at pro football. For years, for decades almost, people have talked about how pro pro football could be a studio sport. You really don't need fans there. We're kind of getting close to that now with these uh, restricted uh, spectator segments in in stadiums around the country, right? Yeah, but I think it was still nice to be uh, there for the game, to be able to witness what's going on on the sidelines, to have more of a a view than just... Uh, eyeing it from what you would get on a monitor. I know that there have been a couple of collegiate games that have been called from monitors, and I don't know how that would transpire. I know when I'm sitting in my living room, I don't see everything that I see when I'm in broadcast. So as we move forward and as the season uh, 
on trolls, there are going to be more stadiums where there are going to be limited number of fans, and I think that's a, a good experience too. If you can get fans in, a quarter of them or whatever, and socially distance, it can be a good experience. Overall, James, your thoughts on the Bills' performance against the Jets? Overall, I was uh, impressed with the Bills. Uh, you know, their fightiness on defense. Uh, Josh Allen running around. Obviously, the uh, two injuries to the linebackers, Tremaine Edwards, Edmonds, and uh, Matt Milano. I think hopefully they're not too significant, and uh, because there's not a lot of great depth at, at the linebacker position on this team right now, a lot, not a lot of depth where they have experience, and um, so I think that could be a fly in the ointment for a little while. I wonder, James, if you think the Bills got an accurate test of how good they might be because the Jets were such an inferior opponent. I, I, I don't I don't think so. I think the uh, the Bills are a solid team that's, that's building. Um, it was funny, during the course of the broadcast, the one thing that I wanted to see were clean runs by the, the running backs and kept having penetration, disruption. And then I realized... The Jets were one of the best teams against the run in the league last year. Yep. They have 87 yards per game, 3.3 average. And so you're going up against one of the best running teams, and Brian Dayball must have realized that the best thing we can do is to fake to the running back and let Josh Allen run the ball. Yeah. And those runs were productive other than the two fumbles that he had. I thought he spread the ball out well. Eight different receivers catching passes is impressive. Um, the screen game was wasn't there to the running backs because that was something that the Jets once again smithed out. Uh, but when he had one-on-one matchups to wide receivers, he was able to hit them. He didn't miss very many throws. And so you look at the protection they had, especially when Jets only rushed four people. Great protection, understanding the pocket and survey. When they went to five rushers and six rushers, that causes problems for each and every quarterback around the league. James Stefan Diggs joins the Bills this past uh, year, this past offseason, at age 26. You came to Buffalo at age 33. A little bit different circumstances, huh? I, I was uh, not a spring chicken when they came to the Bills. I remember we were out at practice when they practiced in the stadium. And Mark Levy actually allowed us one bench to sit on when we weren't doing when your unit wasn't up. And so there was a, usually a race over to the bench because we could only see about eight people. <laughs> so I would race over there and grab the seat. And one day I was sitting next to Thurman Thomas. And he looked at me and goes, how old are you? <laughs> and, he, and he pinched me. <laughs> and, and, you know, at the time I was 10 years older than he was. That's a huge gap in the NFL. So, you know, I, all the young players, that I was involved with for the Bills, and then, you know, I'm like the senior citizen of the team. So, yeah, it was a, a whole different experience of what Stefan is stepping into. But we talked about it a little bit on the broadcast. You know, this was a receiver-rich draft. There were six receivers drafted in the first round, I think seven more in the second round. But going all in on Stephon Diggs, getting up the draft picks, I think they knew that what they needed was somebody who – Josh Allen could have immediate confidence in. Not something that he would build a rapport with, but immediate confidence. And I think that is the case with Stephon Diggs. During your time with the Bills, you went to three Super Bowls. When you came here, did you expect that you and the Bills would have that kind of success? It was funny. In uh, 88, I had played against the Bills yep. when I was with the Raiders. And uh, actually, played, I, I might have played them 
in 87 also out in uh, the Coliseum in, La- in Los Angeles, and then we played back in Buffalo the next year. So I caught a couple of passes in each one of those games. I think I had a 50 yarder in Rich Stadium at the time, and I had a touchdown out uh, in Los Angeles. So, you know, I had some success against him, and now that I'm thinking about it, I may have my teams mixed up as to which team I win. <laughs> but I had had some success against the Bills a little bit and gone up against Nate Owens. So I think sometimes when you're evaluating talent, what you remember is what you see when you go against people. Yeah. After you left the Bills, James, you played a little bit with the Rams and the Eagles, and then you became a coach six years with the Chargers, two in Oakland. Why did you go on that path? Why did you want to be a coach? You know, I had, I had gone into broadcasting, and I'd been in the broadcast booth for a while, and and I just had that itch to think that I could become a head coach. Um, the Stanford job had come open, and somebody called me and asked me was I interested in, in coaching at that time, and I thought, oh, that, that'd be something that'd be pretty pretty interesting. And then later on, I started to try and pursue it. And I remember right before the Houston Texans started up, I had gone down to Houston and talked to Don Capers, who was going to be the uh, head coach of the Texans, and uh, didn't get the job. And, and I walked away, and I said, uh, they should have hired me. Why didn't yeah. they hire me? Well, I had no experience. And then a year later, uh, Tom Butler was with Maurice Schottenheimer in San Diego. And I remember contacting Tom Butler because I was doing a radio broadcast of the very last game of the season. And I talked to him about the fact that I was thinking about coaching. He said, well, I would stay out of it, but I'll let you interview with the head coach. And uh, I went in and I interviewed with Marty Schottenheimer, and I got hired for the job. And it, it was really uh, a great experience. So I thought as a former player that I knew a lot about football. What I realized compared to what coaches know, I was in grade school for what I knew about football. And uh, so it was a great education, and it, it helped me in the broadcast booth in terms of the way that you see things and the understanding of how hard the coaches work to get the players on the field on Sunday. There's this theory, James, that sometimes good players, or in your case, Hall of Fame players, don't make the best coaches. What do you think of that theory? Well, think about when you hire a hot offensive or defensive coordinator and they come in as your head coach. They don't always make the best head coach, or they don't have great head coach results. Uh, I don't the fact that you play the game or that you play the game at a high level determines if you're going to be a good coach or not. And I don't think it's a deterrent to being a good coach. I think having the players been a good organization, all that lends to the fact that you can become a good coach because all you have to do is be a good teacher. And if you can teach it, and that's what I really enjoy. I enjoy teaching that position. Once I, once I went to the coaching, and that was, to me, that was fascinating because it's the how do you teach, how do you implement, how do you get guys to do things in practice that you want them to be able to do in the game, and I, and I love that aspect of it. Yeah. Last thing I want to ask you about, James, and it's not football related, but we talked about it when we visited in the booth on Sunday. Your home state, California, you're a native of Southern California. You played college football up north at Stanford. You've lived back in uh, Southern California for a long time now. And I'm concerned about the wildfires and the general uh, tenor of what's going on in California, uh, our most populous state, maybe our most important state in the country. What do you think, James? What are your reflections on what's going on out west? Yeah, I think any time that you have an abundance of people somewhere, you're going to be focused on some of the things that are bad about the state and some of the misfortunes. And right now, 
the wildfires that we've been having, more more uh, more occurrences of over the last 20 years. Because I've been back in California now since 2002, and you, you just see it more and more each year. And it was funny. One of the uh, brush fires that you know consumed massive amounts of land was started by a gender reveal. Yeah. Where they were gonna is it a boy or is it a girl? Right. Some pyrotechnics and those fireworks got caught. So a lot of these instances start man-made, and but we've been having droughts, and you know there's an argument over whether climate change is real or not. I think when you look at the droughts, when you look at the hurricanes that are more frequent, I think a lot of uh, the climate is changing and it's changing right in front of us. James, thanks very much. James Lofton, Pro Football Hall of Fame wide receiver. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. It's Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. We're with Tim Herzog, the general manager, founder of Flying Bison Brewing Company. He started it all. He's been called the founding father of craft brewing in Buffalo. Do you agree, Tim? Are you, in fact, the founding father? <laughs> my uh, my knees would agree with you, John. <laughs> Tell me how it all got. To- well, here's the thing. I'm, I'm new to the uh, beer business in Buffalo, but the beer okay. business in Buffalo is not new, right? I mean, there's a substantial and really uh, glorious history of brewing in Buffalo that goes way back. Yeah, the late 1800s to probably early 50s were considered the, the golden age of beer in Buffalo. There were 35 breweries located within the city limits of Buffalo. And Buffalo was a more compact city than it is now. The city went from South Park to Hurdle Avenue, and that was it. And there were 35 breweries in that space. But during that time, none of that beer was shipped. It all stayed right here in Buffalo. And there was no Budweiser coming in and no you know, Coors coming in and, and those sorts of things. So all the, all the beer was local beer. And uh, Buffalo was a beer city because it was a very immigrant city. It was German, it was Irish, it was English. Polish, and those are all countries that have, to this day, a very good beer culture. And Tim, it was almost, it was, it was as if uh, prohibition sort of changed the course of brewing history in Buffalo and throughout the country, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, prohibition killed most of the breweries here in Buffalo directly, and the few that were able to reopen after prohibition got price ward out of business by much larger breweries that started shipping beer in for almost no profit just to put the local breweries out of business so Mm. that they could come in and just their massive beers could get pulled in by the vacuum. But what Buffalo had that most other cities in the United States don't have is the proximity to the Canadian border. So while the, the massive breweries, that were able to grow during prohibition. I'm not saying that they were doing anything illegal, but they grew. Um, they, they expected that they would be number one. And really the Canadian beers are what became number one in Buffalo. So Labatt's and Molson got to be very big, very quickly. Yeah. It, it struck me when I was uh, reading the history of flying bison, how, uh, when I grew up, and you know, I'm 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 your I'm a contemporary of yours, I guess. But it was all you know, Budweiser and Coors and Schmitz and Slitz and and the Canadians, uh, Molson and the Bats, and that was pretty much it in Buffalo, like 40, 50 years ago, right? Right, exactly. I I moved to Buffalo in '76, and for me, it was really nice. Uh, there was a 
I went to Buffalo State College, and there there was a pub on campus, which is heresy these days. <laughs> but uh, you could get a bottle of O'Keefe's Ale from Canada or Labatt's Velvet Cream Porter, actual real beers with malted barley and, and flavor and, and all that. And uh, the mass-produced beers in the States had gone over to a lot of adjuncts, a lot of you know rice grits and corn sugar and, and things like that to make the beers cheaper. And um, so we were lucky enough in Buffalo to be able to get decent beer. And that's what eventually planted the seed for what has become Flying Bison Brewing Company. Well, the, the planted the seed in you and you started out brewing beer at home, I read, right? That's how you got started even before Flying Bison. Yeah, 1981. So next May is my 40th anniversary of being a brewer. Wow. How did you go from brewing a beer at home to an uh, actual brewery, Flying Bison? What was the transition like? Well, for me, it was a really slippery slope, John. I, I, um, you know, the first batch that I made, now I, I already liked messing around in the kitchen. And I had found Guinness Foreign Export Stout and, you know, O'Keefe's Ale and, and so on, um, Molson Stock Ale that were good all-malt beers. And so I liked those beers. And the mass-produced beers, I just never liked them. I didn't like the thinness of them and the high level of carbonation. And those are things that didn't light me up. Um, but I liked cooking. I liked to mess around in the kitchen. I had some friends who were chefs and bartenders at local restaurants and bars. And so it just was a really slippery slope. I made the first batch, and uh, it wasn't great. We didn't have really good access to good information or recipes, or the highest quality ingredients, but it was still better than a lot of the stuff that was available in the store in terms of just having flavor. So it just, anything I could get my hands on, I just became a sponge for it. I have magazines and crates of books, and you know now all you need is your phone, and you can get almost anything you want off of the internet. So yeah. people can move their brewing knowledge forward much quicker today than, than I could back in the 80s. Tim, who, when you started Flying Bison tw uh, 20 years ago, it was the first standalone brewery in uh, Buffalo since uh, Iroquois went out of business in 1972. So who was your model? Who are you, who are you kind of patterning your Flying Bison after? Really, the European breweries. I had taken a trip to England. Uh, with a friend of mine who became my partner. Uh, his name was Red Morozik. Um, unfortunately, Red was killed before we got in a motorcycle accident before we got the brewery open. Um, mm. And that's why our, our flagship Irish Red is Aviator Red. Um, and uh, the Sullivan's guys, when they visit Buffalo, we usually try and get together and, you know, sit around and, and have a Sullivan's and an Aviator Red and, you know, lie about which one's better and which one isn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> how do they compare aviator red and sullivan's irish red ale what do you think um quite favorably because they're they're pretty much modeled on the same ideal that there there used to be a beer called smittick's barley wine yeah and you could get that in toronto but you couldn't get it here in buffalo and with ontario being the 51st state you know it was pretty easy to get over there and once I tried that beer, you know, Red and I both thought that was a really great beer. And we didn't agree on a lot of stuff. I liked the, the lighter four and a half, five percent, the lower alcohol beers. And he was a big burly guy. So for him, a seven and eight percent beer was no big deal. So 
at the time I, I weighed a strapping 155 pounds. So I, <laughs> I had to watch my, my consumption and absorption rates. Um, so, so the European breweries uh, were, were kind of our model because they were still making beers with all malted barley and fresh hops and, and they were willing to tell their customers about what they made what their beers out of. Explosion of, yeah. Tim, what do you think accounts for the explosion of craft beer? I mean, you started it in in the year 2000. Since then, you know, there's a craft beer on almost every corner. How have American taste, uh, tastes for beer changed in these years? I think people just started agreeing with me, John. That's all there is to it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think you could say the same thing about coffee, about bread, about... Um, wine about you know people had figured out that mass produced didn't mean flavorful didn't mean delicious didn't mean enjoyable it meant less expensive um, in many cases but not in all cases Um, and I I think people just kind of got sick of you know watered down cheapened down everything and now it's they're, they're willing to spend a little more for their beer and enjoy one can or bottle of a really good flavorful beer rather than a six pack of something that's kind of sultry. You've had tremendous success with a couple of uh, particular brands, Rusty Chain, the best selling local craft beer in, uh, in Buffalo. Tell me why that's been so successful for you. Um, you know, be careful when you try and do something nice for somebody, it can come back and get you. So this, this started out as a, a, a fundraiser, awareness raiser for a group that's come to be known as Go Bike Buffalo. So when you see the bike racks on Elmwood and Delaware and the bike lanes that are being striped so that people can ride safely, it's the sky ride in, you know, in summers when we don't have a, a, COVID, pan, a COVID pandemic, um, that's Go Bike Buffalo. That's what they do. They make it easier, safer for people to get around, whether they're walking in wheelchairs, on bicycles. Um, and it's a great advocacy group. So started out doing that, and it was a, a nice – it's been a nice partnership for, I don't know, somewhere around 12, 14 years. And that's, that's really all it is. It's, it's a nice beer. It's a very drinkable beer. Uh, it's my favorite beer with a pepperoni pizza. I, I think that's a great pair. And there's plenty of places to get good pepperoni pizza in Buffalo. Yeah. So, that, you know, I think that just the, the flavor strikes a lot of chords. It's, it's light enough in alcohol that you can drink it on its own, but it's got enough flavor that it goes well with food. So I, I think it's a pretty versatile beer, and people just caught on to it. And I'd like to say that I'm some sort of marketing genius, but I'm obviously not. Um, but people just took to that beer, and, and, and that's it. It's, it's just demand. That's all it is. Tell me about the explosion of uh, IPAs, and in particular, your IPA, 716. That's a popular brand of yours, right? Yes. Yes, it is. And I think it's just the maturing of the palate, where in, in wine, everybody started out with a lighter, sweeter white and eventually got into lighter reds like Pinot Noirs. And now it's not hard to go into almost any liquor store and find an old growth Zinfandel on the shelf and people are buying it. Uh, it's just the maturing of the palate. They, we don't need everything light and sweet in flavor. Uh, we can have flavors that are richer, that are denser. And it's the same with IPAs. People, it, when I first started, if you said ale, people would turn inside out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you said, Ops or bitterness, they would just lose it. And that's not true anymore. They've just become 
the average consumer has become more sophisticated and their palate has become more sophisticated. So they're willing to have a beer with hop flavors, with bitterness, with malt richness, with color. With um, So uh, as we go on, and, and that's why you're seeing some of the beers that are available now are just downright weird. You know, sour yeah. popsicle beers, they're purple with pink foam and people aren't afraid of those things anymore. Uh, 10, 12 years ago, uh, it would have been a big deal. You've got a beer that's, you've got a beer that's patterned after Paula's donuts, right? Peanut stick donut or something. Yeah. Yeah. They've, they've been really good friends and and they're moving into the neighborhood. Um, And uh, of course with the the COVID thing, we say COVID a lot these days. um, They're the building that's, that's going up four doors away from us has, has slowed down. They were supposed to be open by now. And the idea was to, because there's all these unusual flavors that are different from beer flavors that people are putting in beer and the public accepts it and they like it and they want more of it. So we came up with, well, why don't we do something with Paula's donut? So we went and talked with Paula and her family and their, you know, their response was, yes, absolutely. Why are you here? What, what do you want to do? You know, they're, they're just very yeah. willing to jump in and do something that's fun. So we're looking yeah. forward to having them as neighbors. We'll, we'll do another uh, donut-inspired beer uh, either Christmas time or in the early spring when they're getting ready to open. Kind of leads me to, I guess, a two-part question, Tim. Where does the beer industry go from here, number one? And part two, what is the role, what is the niche for, for flying bison and for an uh, import like, uh, like Sullivan's? What do you see? Well, the where do we go from here is we hope like crazy that there's not another shutdown. Um, yeah. Because for a brewery, our our small brewery was primarily draft beer. We put beer in bottles. We now have a canning line, so we can put beer in cans. But we're primarily a draft beer producer, and that to this day still hurts the the shutdowns and the slowdowns and the reduced capacities and. Uh, you know, packaged beer is starting to come back to where it was before March, but, you know, right as St. Patrick's Day was about to take off and Dingus Day was about to take off, everything got shut down. So we lost a lot, a lot, a lot of sales. Um, as far as where we go and, and, you know, having Sullivan's in the market, I think is a wonderful thing. The fact that uh, Mike and, and, uh, and his confidence in them as, as a really good brewery to bring it to a city that has a strong Irish heritage and a strong beer drinking heritage, you know, we're really thrilled. And when I first met Mike and Dan and Ian and, and uh, you know, all the Sullivan folks when they were here for their rollout, our distributor, Triad Distributing, invited me to the, the rollout at, at Michael's place on uh, Delaware Avenue. And mm-hmm. the Sullivan's guys were kind of surprised that I was there. And I said, well, why? What's the big deal? Well, you know, you have this red ale, and while we like it, you know, we think ours is better. And I said, well, go ahead, prove it, big shot. Um, <laughs> so we, we've been friends ever since. So my wife and I had an opportunity to go to Ireland three years ago, and we made sure we got to Kilkenny, which is where my Irish ancestors are from. And Excellent. so to, to go to their sampling room and just be able to hang out with Ian and Dan uh, was just, just an awful lot of fun. Yeah. You have a, a, a tap room here in Buffalo in Larkinville, and you have a, a regular well event coming up on, on Wednesday night, baseball dinner. Tell us about that one, if you would, Tim. Yes. So 
to be able to do events even up to 50 people, which is our, our max that we're allowed, we can seat more than that in our sampling room, but everything is spaced out. We seat a maximum of 50 people. We're having uh, a baseball dinner with special guest Conehead. Uh, sure. and he's helping us hand, hand out the cans of uh, beer, just like at the ballpark. Uh, we're grilling some Salem hot dogs, and we're showing the Blue Jays-Yankees game on the big screen TV that we set up here in the brewery. So you can see the game. We play the, the uh, audio over the, over the speakers here in the brewery. And just you know, watch a ball game with some friends and have a beer and a dog and uh, you know, listen to that conehead guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> that'll be great hey tim thanks for this i've learned a lot and i continue to learn we appreciate you spending time with us today thank you john it's my pleasure stop by for a beer when you got time i will tim herzog is thank the general manager founder of flying bison brewing company in buffalo well tim herzog is certainly an interesting character i enjoyed talking with him he is the man behind the flying bison brewing company in buffalo he is referred to and considered the godfather of craft brewing in western new york always great to talk with james lofton i saw him and talked with him in the booth on sunday always intelligent always interesting that's why i felt comfortable bringing up other topics like what's going on in the state of california and COVID, that sort of thing over the many years i've covered the bills i would consider james lofton one of the most thoughtful and intelligent players i've ever met we are brought to you by Sullivan's Brewing Company, based in Kilkenny, Ireland. The brewers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. You can find it in bars and taverns all over Bill's country here in upstate New York. You can find it in stores and supermarkets as well. And it's available elsewhere, too. Available now in Cleveland and Pittsburgh, New York City, New Jersey, Savannah, and Atlanta, Georgia. They are growing, for sure. If you have questions about our podcast, you can send them in to uh, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at MurphBills. want to thank Pat Feldball, our producer, for doing another outstanding job this week. That'll do it. We'll see you next week right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff Podcast. You've been listening to John Murphy and the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the bills and the beer.